Good afternoon. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Multilateral International Development, Multilateral Institutions, and International Economic, Energy, and Environmental Policy will come to order. I want to thank the ranking member, Senator Merkley. I uh, remain grateful for our bipartisan partnership on so many issues, Senator. Uh, the title for today's hearing is Why Food Security Matters. Today we have an impressive group of leaders, scholars, and experts joining us to discuss this important issue. We will divide today's hearings, uh, hearing into three panels. The first panel consists of the Honorable David Beasley, Executive Director of the World Food Program. Welcome, Director. Our second panel will consist of Mr. Matthew Nims, the Acting Director of the Office of Food for Peace at the United States Agency for International Development. And our third and final panel will consist of three witnesses, Dr. Chase Sova, the Director of Public Policy and Research at World Food Program USA, Lieutenant General Retired John Casalaw, who served with distinction in the United States Marine Corps, and Ms. Michelle Nunn, President and Chief, Chief Executive Officer of CARE USA. Given this excellent group of leaders and experts, I'm eager to hear from each of you. But before we do so, allow me to make a few comments to frame and catalyze our discussion this afternoon. I'll start with two important statistics. First, Executive Director Beasley, you note in your prepared statement that in 2016, the number of chronically hungry people in the world went up for the first time in a decade, reaching 815 million people. You also note that 108 million people are acutely hungry. And second, in December 2017, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs launched its highest ever global appeal for $22.5 billion to support 2018 humanitarian requirements. Now these numbers are staggering, they're also heartbreaking. When we confront such horrible humanitarian suffering, most of us recognize a moral imperative to help wherever we can, I certainly do. As Mr. Nims wrote in his prepared statement for today's hearing, we provide food assistance because it eases human suffering and represents our core American values of compassion and generosity. You go on to say that, quote, helping feed those around the world in their time of need is the right thing to do. I agree, but Mr. Nims doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that helping to feed the hungry around the world makes America and her allies safer. Executive Director Beasley, you concur, saying, Feeding hungry people contributes to the economic and national security interests of the United States. Lieutenant General Castlaw, you put it quite succinctly, saying that food crises grow terrorists. I find these assertions intuitively compelling, and there are many anecdotes and case studies that strongly suggest a correlation and uh, even a causation between hunger and instability or hunger and conflict. But at this time of seemingly unlimited threats and challenges, anecdotes and suggestions aren't enough to effectively help justify the allocation of finite resources for food security related programs. We need to look at the evidence. 
And I believe a growing body of research from the World Food Program to the UN Development Program, the World Bank, the United Nations, and a number of individual scholars conclusively demonstrates the connection between food insecurity and instability. Dr. Sova writes in his prepared remarks for today's hearing that, quote, while we have long understood the relationship between hunger and instability to exist intuitively, research is now catching up. It's this relatively new research in particular that I look forward to exploring together today. Despite the risk of spoiling the ending, let me say up front where I stand. In addition to a clear moral imperative to fight hunger, I believe there is strong evidentiary and scholarly uh, justification for concluding that it is in America's clear national security interest to address food insecurity, and I am not alone. A 2015 intelligence assessment by our Office of the Director of National Intelligence asserted a clear connection between food insecurity and social disruptions or large-scale political instability. More recently, a joint study published this year by the World Bank and United Nations entitled Pathways for Peace, Inclusive Approaches for Preventing Violence, explored the consequences of food insecurity. And the report concluded, Food insecurity can increase the risk of conflict, particularly when caused by rising food prices, by displacing populations, by exacerbating grievances, and by increasing competition for scarce food and water resources. Now, these social disruptions and political instability foster, enable, and create security threats to Americans and to our national interests. And for those watching this hearing who may have decidedly narrow, and I would argue mistaken, definition of American national security interests and who focus exclusively on so-called hard power, I encourage you to give our witnesses today a fair hearing. Listen to Executive Director Beasley. He's the former Republican governor of South Carolina, and he's visited 36 countries, by latest count, as the head of the World Food Program. Listen to Matt Nims. He spent his professional lifetime working on hunger-related issues. Listen to Dr. Sova's groundbreaking scholarly research. Listen to retired Marine Corps General John Casalaw, who spent decades serving our country in uniform and saw the consequences of food insecurity firsthand. And finally, listen to Michelle Nunn, who leads CARE, an organization that's worked to improve food security since 1945. I'm very excited to hear from our witnesses, and I look forward to continuing our work together to fight global food insecurity because it's the right thing to do, and also because it's one of the best ways to proactively address threats to Americans and our national interests. So with those thoughts in mind, I'd now like to call on Ranking Member Merkley for his opening remarks. Senator Merkley. Well, thank you very much, uh, Senator Young, and I do appreciate the bipartisan way that we're undertaking these issues. There's nothing about starvation in the world, human suffering, that should ever be a, a partisan issue. And I'm very pleased that we have so much expertise being brought into this room. I'm thinking about how perhaps food aid is not one of the sexier issues in international affairs. We don't see a, a room full of members right now. We don't see a line out the door. But in terms of the impact on lives around the world, there may be no more significant discussion 
than how we approach the issue of the United States supporting food aid. Never before have we experienced a number of simultaneous complex humanitarian emergencies around the world. 65 million people across the globe displaced, equivalent to the entire population of France. That includes more than 22 million refugees, 80% of whom live in just four countries, Lebanon, Ethiopia, Jordan, and Kenya. And half of the 18, 815 million people that you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, in the world who are facing hungry every day live in conflict zones and disproportionately concentrated in, in Africa. And conflict has a, a big role in the challenge of nutrition. Last July, Chairman Young and I held a hearing in this committee to discuss the origins and policy prescriptions to combat famine in the four famine countries of Yemen, Somalia, and South Sudan, and Nigeria. Today's hearing builds on that foundation, addressing the question of why food aid matters. Why does it matter? It's certainly a clear expression of the limitless compassion of the American people. And every food basket or voucher, be it sourced from the United States or from a market close to the affected country, is truly from the American people. We know that food insecure countries are less likely to suffer from national, regional, or international instability, as you so well summarized. And we have an additional complicating factor driving food insecurity, which is the impact of human-driven climate chaos. Record global temperatures, droughts, are affecting the production in location after location, including hundreds of thousands of smallholder farms spread around the world. Food aid offers a critical lifeline to those who are caught in the crosshairs of armed violence, including civil war. And the critical lesson we have learned is that the most effective and efficient response to a famine is to prevent one from occurring in the first place. So we have to focus both on addressing famines and working to prevent them. Both are important pieces. Regrettably, during this period when complex humanitarian emergencies are on the rise, President Trump's Fiscal year 2019 budget proposes a reduction by one half in the Title II Food for Peace program and a significant reduction in the International Disaster Assistance Program. So I think it's important for us to hold this hearing at this time to ask and answer the question uh, that is, is being posed so that the Article I branch of, of, of the government uh, can proceed to weigh in, and that's where your expertise addressing this body are so valued. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Ranking Member Merkley. I want to once again welcome Executive Director David Beasley. Uh, in order to keep the lawyers happy, uh, and uh, in light of your affiliation with the United Nations, I, I want to emphasize you're appearing voluntarily today uh, before the subcommittee uh, as a courtesy, so thank you. Your full written statement will, of course, be included in the record. I welcome you to summarize your written statement in about five minutes, sir. Senator, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and Senator Merkley, thank you very much, and it is good to be here, and for the record, I am here voluntarily and uh, should not be understood to be a waiver, expressed or implied, of the privileges of the immunities of the United Nations and its officials under the 1946 Convention on the Privileges and Immunities of the UN. So now that we have that technically and legally out of the way, uh, Senator, you're right. I've been here almost a year. And what I've learned in this year 
of having traveled to over 36 countries, and many of those countries multiple times, has been not just eye-opening, it's been quite shocking to see the realities of what we're facing compared to 30, 40 years ago. We're facing the worst humanitarian crisis since the creation of the United Nations, since World War II. But the crises that we are now facing are different. When the World Food Program was created, it was about natural disasters and earthquakes and, and very select type wars. But today, it's a whole different ballgame. It's no longer just tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and, and climate impacted disasters, but it's also protracted wars and conflicts, 19 protracted areas of conflict. And as Senator Merkley said, 80 to 82% of our expenditures now are in war zones. It's a different ballgame. And it's not just war zones. It's war zones with extremism. ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda. It's a whole different issue. Because migration today out of these war, war zones brings about extremism. And this is what I'd like, if you would allow me to sort of cut through to really get down to what I think is the most serious issue of what we're facing is, yes, funding, of course, we need more funds. That's obvious because we are facing so many crises and why is this in the national interest of the United States, or so the security interests of America? Why is it in the national security interests of the European community? And this was the question that I posed to the Europeans at the Munich Security Conference just a couple of weeks ago. I said, if you think you had a problem with a migration of a few million people out of a nation of the size of Syria of 20 million people, you just wait to the greater Sahel of 500 million people start heading your way. And I say that because of the reality of what we see on the ground. It's not just crisis like we had before. It's a whole different ballgame. And if we don't get ahead of the curve, it will cost 10 to 100 times more. We know now because of the failure to do the things that we needed to do in the past to provide the sustainable development to bring about the resilience that's needed in communities. It's costing the global economy, just last year alone, 12% of the GDP, $14 trillion was the impact of global conflict. And to think that only the World Food Program needed about $18 million billion. So let's discuss with a little bit of the reality of what we're facing. Like in Syria, failure to get ahead of the curve, so to speak. Six million people that we're feeding on any given day inside Syria, another five to six million that we're feeding on any given day outside of Syria. And because of the support of countries like the United States that leads the world last year alone, because there were a lot of people around the world concerned that the United States would back down off its commitment in leading in providing international aid. But what I could say very proudly to leaders all over the world, the United States, Republicans and Democrats coming together, clearly said to the world that we will continue to lead and we will provide the support necessary. And because of that, it's making a difference. But when we don't work together strategically, we have the consequences and the fallout of places like Syria. And what we do know, based on our surveys and studies, in Syria, for example, and this is typical of any other country in conflict today, for every 1% increase there is in hunger, there is a 2% increase in migration. And when we feed a Syrian in, in Syria, it's 50 cents a day. And that's just almost twice what it normally costs, but it's a war zone. Uh, the cost of feeding a Syrian and the humanitarian cost in Berlin is 50 euros a day. And the Syrian doesn't want to be in Berlin. 
They will actually move three to four times inside Syria before they'll actually leave their country because they want to stay home. People don't want to migrate. But the complication now is that when there's migration, there's also infiltration by ISIS or Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, and Al-Shabaab. And so now that ISIS has been moved out of Syria, well, guess where they're going? They're going to one of the most fragile areas of the world in the Sahel, the greater Sahel region. And now they're partnering. We know. We see this on the ground every day. When you feed 80 to 82 million people on any given day, you hear a lot and see a lot. We are the world's experts of what's taking place out there. And ISIS is cutting deals, partnerships with Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda and ISIS all throughout the greater Sahel region with purpose of infiltration for destabilization, taking advantage of corrupt governments, mismanaged governments, droughts, climate change, very fragile communities with the hopes that through this destabilization, there'll be mass migration into Europe so there can be further chaos. But while I'll say that, let me also add that I'm now very, very concerned about what's happening in Latin America and South America. Two days ago, I was on the ground at the border of Venezuela and Colombia. It was heartbreaking to see what's taking place. What we're experiencing, the possibilities of the greater Sahel, are very well possibilities if it could happen in the Western Hemisphere. 80% of the people are food insecure in Venezuela. 50,000 people per day are crossing the border just in Cucuta per day. Over 4 million people have already left Venezuela in the last few years. A million this past year, 660,000 stayed inside in uh, Colombia. But the migration today is interesting because about 50,000 in Cucuta, probably 100,000 across the border of 2,200 miles, uh, 2,200 kilometers, 50,000 will come across and about 90% will go back. But they're running out of food. It's not a money issue anymore. There is no food. And so there's going to be a tipping point where the 50,000, the 100,000 that cross per day selling hair, and sadly the stories of prostitution of little girls and little boys, and men and young boys are signing up with the extremist groups, illegal armed groups. And the extremists of the right wing are trying to take advantage of this to try to destabilize Colombia, a nation that's doing its best to be a tremendous host community. But if those 100,000 per day no longer start going back, you will see the serious potential of destabilizing the entire South American continent. And the implications for the United States and its neighbors to the north could be tragic. This is why I am so proud to see Republicans and Democrats who might have differences on what the immigration policy should be, but to see them coming together to realize if we can address the root cause of the problems, then people won't want to move, and when they do, it's for all the right reasons. Now, Senator, there's a lot I can add. I know, I know we're going to answer some questions about some of the things that we're doing what will make a difference. It's not just about humanitarian dollars. How do we use every humanitarian dollar for a, a development opportunity? What can we do to change the course of time? What can we do to change the direction so that more nations work together and we have less silos? And how can the UN be more effective? And how can the United States government be more effective working in conjunction with Germany, the UK, Canada, and other nations around the world? Because when we partner together in a cohesive way and collaborate together, we can solve anything on the face of the planet. So yes, we're going in the wrong direction, but I do believe if we get our act together, and to get to the root cause of these problems, we'll save our children in such a way there will be a brighter future. So, Senator, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Good to be here, and I'll answer any questions. Well, thank you, Governor, for uh, setting the table there. 
uh, with uh, that compelling testimony, uh, you discussed the costs of providing humanitarian assistance uh, when you have refugees leaving the Middle East, uh, the Sahel, and uh, traveling into Europe, and, um, and, and how those costs increase uh, when you have this instability, these refugee flows. Can you provide some additional details on this and discuss the policy implications of this cost on uh, receiving countries, if you would? Well, multiple ways, but just as I was mentioning earlier, for example, in the Syrian war, uh, the cost of feeding a Syrian in Syria is about 50 cents per day. Normally, it's about 30 cents per day in non-conflict zones, but as you can imagine, the increased cost in security of delivering food in war zones is quite extraordinary. And I must uh, add my admiration for the men and women that work uh, inside the World Food Program and those we partner with. They put their lives out on the, you know, as you well know, every single day, whether it's Syria or Yemen or out or uh, South Sudan or Northeast Nigeria or Somalia where you have tremendous conflict and desperate situations. But the 50 cents per day versus 50 euros per day for a full humanitarian cost when you begin into a declared refugee status. And so when you look at the implications of the cost factor and the impact it has on nations, and particularly when you consider that most nations that are impacted are not the wealthy nations, because most refugees end up in other poor nations. When you look at South Sudan, you have over a million refugees in Uganda, in Ethiopia, in Rwanda, or in Myanmar crisis, they're in Beth, uh, Bangladesh, and the list goes on. This is the problem when you have, like, for example, the country of Colombia. The country of Colombia has made so much progress in the past 15 years on peace. But now you see every bit of that progress has the potential being destabilized because of this extraordinary influx of folks. And, and so you and I have discussed this before. Uh, most of these individuals, they, they don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to leave their home countries, uh, correct? Correct. Okay, yes. so they're, they're driven out. Does it make some sense in light of the increased costs and in light of the desires of these refugees uh, alike uh, for the American taxpayer to be thinking about, gosh, how do, we, how do we prevent this situation? How do we help these vulnerable people on the front end as opposed to the back end? Effective humanitarian assistance and development programs save not just money, but it saves lives, and it is in the national security interest of the American people, the Europeans. And, Senator, I see this every day. I can tell you story after story of talking to women whose husband had to sign up with ISIS or Al-Shabaab or Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda. Why? Because they had no food. You see, the extremists, the terrorist groups, will use food as a weapon of recruitment a weapon of war. We see food as a weapon of peace, a, re a weapon of reconciliation, of building bridges. And so if you can't feed your little girl in two weeks, and your only show in town is this terrorist group, and so many men have signed up because they have no other alternative, and the cost will be 10 to 100 times what it would be if we did it right and got ahead of the curve and provided sustainable development. So we need timely. We need uh, effective, we need uh, sufficient uh, uh, resources to be brought to bear to deal with this uh, issue. And uh, you alluded to the siloed nature of, of our, our donor system. Um, I'd like you perhaps to elaborate on that. I know the World Food Program 
uh, per your testimonies, trying to break down these barriers between donor countries so that the money that comes in can encourage, not discourage, long-term strategic planning and execution. Uh, but uh, maybe share with us, all, all those who are watching here, uh, what barriers exist between donor countries and, and how we might play a constructive role, Senator Merkley, myself, and others on the committee, to encourage better coordination among donors? Well, yeah, one of the advantages of having been a United States governor, you know, like, like you, you see a problem, how do we solve it? Now, what programs do we have? And sometimes, as you well know, programs have been defined based in the 60s and the 70s with little flexibility. And because of the problems that we face today are different, tremendously different, we need more flexibility to be able to achieve the objectives. And so we see, for example, every particular food recipient, a beneficiary out in any given country, that is in a non-short-term emergency like a hurricane or an earthquake or something like that, because now they're protracted conflicts. But how can we use every humanitarian dollar as a development opportunity? For example, last year, just last year alone, uh, we had over 10 million people engaged in a food for asset or food for work type program whereby they were building roads, over 10,000 uh, miles of, 7,000 miles of roads last year, uh, bridges, irrigation ponds, 5,400 uh, ponds and irrigation facilities, just like in Kenya alone, 330,000 acres of land uh, rehabilitated. Just as just last year, in the Tigray area a few years ago, we rehabilitated with beneficiaries over approximately 1 million acres. Now, if you go to that area, money well spent, it's no longer vulnerable to extremist groups, it's resilient, they've got crops, They've got livelihoods, and they're no longer dependent upon international support. That's the type of aid. That's the type of strategic thinking. But it's not just a U.S. issue, because I believe as we need to give greater flexibility within the programs of the United States government, also the United Nations has got to be more flexible as well. And at the same time, other major donor countries have got to be more flexible. And I do believe and I've clearly stated this to leaders in other countries, that the major donors need to collaborate in a more holistic, comprehensive approach so that we don't have competing programs that sometimes these governments will take advantage of uh, that diminishes the opportunities for success with limited dollars. But I do believe if we can have the food for asset type approach, because if you don't have food security, you don't, you're not going to have anything else. I mean, the migration, the conflict, the chaos, and it all starts with food security. And if people can eat, uh, they'll stay home. And young boys and girls will stay home with the, with the hopes of a brighter future. We see that every day in the World Food Program. And to ensure that people can eat, uh, your emphasis, I think, on, on flexibility is, uh, is, is certainly merited, especially uh, this statistic that uh, you offered in uh, uh, your written testimony. More than 90% of the money that the World Food Program receives is earmarked, not just for specific countries, but for specific activities within them. That, I mean, I don't have anything to benchmark that against, but that strikes me as, as, as very high, sir. Well, the more flexibility we have, that gives us uh, the ability to preposition and uh, truly design the programs with the right modality, because each country is different. In certain countries, you want to be, bring in commodities. In certain countries, you want to have a, a voucher-type system to stimulate the local market. 
And so how do we do that? And so that we can have farm for asset and farm to market alliances and create economic viability in countries versus just coming in and bringing food aid in whatever capacity it may be. We know when we can come in and try to align it with economic viability and opportunities for small farm holders, it's a tremendous opportunity. For example, last year uh, with and the United States is out of our seven billion that we raised this past year, 2.5 billion came from the United States. And just last year alone, we actually purchased $350 million worth of food from smallholder farmers inside Africa, helping stimulate and grow the economy so that they can have sustainability and resilience. Thank you, Senator Merkley. Very struck by your, your vast knowledge from this past year of, of visiting so many parts of the world, the conflict zones, uh, areas affected by, by, by drought, all kinds of things. I understand there's an opening in the Secretary of State's office. Uh. Senator, if this hearing goes more than an hour, it exhausts all I know. So. <laughs> I, I wanted to um, focus on a statistic you mentioned, and I, if I heard it right, 50 cents a day to provide meals. So roughly the equivalent of 15 cents per, per meal. And um, I don't think people realize how much bang for the buck that is, occurs in terms of- that's a war zone. It's actually 31 cents in a non-war zone. There you go, yeah. And you also mentioned Miramar. And um, in Miramar, we don't have drought. Uh, we didn't even have a civil war. Uh, but we had uh, actions of, of a government that uh, decided to essentially as assault one of its own minority groups in a massive way. And I'm not sure um, how we could have prevented that, but I do think that the international community needs to respond vociferously to discourage others, uh, other dictators uh, from deciding to take an action against unpopular groups. And, I hope that the, our, our government and many governments in the UN will, will speak up ferociously uh, about that. You, you used a phrase that while we may see food as an instrument of peace, for many it's a weapon of war. Uh, and if I was taking a look at Somalia, well, there we have Al-Shabaab that used the food shortage in 2011 to boost its recruitment from the local population by providing salaries and cash payments while restricting the humanitarian aid that was coming in from, from outside. And we see all sorts of other, other things, including uh, Al-Shabaab putting taxes on the foreign aid workers who are delivering food. As you see uh, these developments where hostile groups are blocking food, and my, my colleague made a really uh, concerted point of that in terms of uh, humanitarian relief in Yemen, uh, or you see other strategies um, that involved uh, trying to block food from getting to people to starve out the opponent, etc. What sorts of things should we be thinking about as an international community to try to respond to those tactics? Senator, because it is different than 30, 40 years ago, and let me say thank you to this committee because I do believe because of the efforts of the men and women on this committee uh, that we had tremendous change of course of direction in Yemen. Uh, the Saudis, UAE and others, uh, the, the support and the cooperation that uh, is taking place in the last couple of months has been a dramatic improvement uh, in terms of that part of the war. 
Now, unfortunately, from the Houthi side, it's gotten worse. Our access has gotten more complicated, and not to go into all the details, but we are really struggling getting the access we need uh, to the people that are very vulnerable throughout a, a country whereby almost, uh, oh boy, we're feeding about 7 million people on any given day, and 18, of the million, 18 million of the 27 million are very food insecure. It's a desperate situation, but because of the United States and support of some allies like the UK, we've made great progress with with Saudi Arabia and UAE. Now we need to bear the pressure on the Houthis to give us access we need. In, in places like uh, where you have Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab or ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and they use food in, in multiple ways. One, they block access uh, so that food cannot get into the air. Then they'll use food for recruitment. And what is very critical, and while we're very new, we are neutral, as you well know, we're a neutral uh, entity in, in all regards. Uh, I would highly advise in these very complicated area that we need to make certain that we can safely move food and there needs to be a security and safety component that goes along in these very fragile and vulnerable areas. And as I was mentioning earlier, uh, whether you're talking about Somalia where Al-Shabaab primarily is engaged now uh, in a more fragile Ethiopia particularly in the Somali region of Ethiopia, and then go all the way, as I call the greater Sahel area. People will talk about the Sahel. Well, the greater Sahel, which is about 500 million people from Nigeria, you go from the Red Sea all the way to the Atlantic, you're talking about an extraordinary uh, complex and very fragile area that I am extremely concerned uh, in so many ways. And so ISIS, who's moved primarily down into this region, are partnering and cutting deals with Boko Haram in northeast Nigeria in the Lake Chad Basin, taking advantage of the drought and the fragile conditions. And this also being compounded, and this is really hard to believe, and, and no, no matter what you may think of what's causing the, the weather to change, we all know it's changing. We all know the impact that's taking place in this greater Sahel region. For example, when I was meeting with the Minister of Agriculture from Nigeria uh, last week, he told me that in the Nigerian, uh, Niger, Mali area, that border area, each year, 1.5 kilometers of what was grazing territory is lost to sand per year. Now, what does that mean? That may not seem to be that big of a deal, except, guess what? The herders, the pastoralists, are moving down 1.5 kilometers per year into the croplands. And the wars and the conflicts and the, the killings are absolutely amazing. And couple that with ISIS and Boko Haram are taking advantage of this fragility, just like what we're seeing in Venezuela. It's an absolute perfect storm heading our way. And, of course, we know what the extremist groups want to do. They want to be able to infiltrate, demigrate, so they can destabilize the global economy in Europe and the U.S. And so it's in the national security interest of the American people, and it will save lives and it will save money if we get ahead of the curve and do the things we need to do to provide the resilience necessary, Senator. Thank you. Well, I thank you for all your testimony, uh, Mr. Executive Director. I, I would only close by noting uh, that uh, you have indicated that there's a need for a proactive and, and uh, strategic plan to help us create security and stability. Uh, since uh, we are respectively chairman and ranking member of the Multilateral Institution Subcommittee here, um, I think it appropriate that uh, maybe offline we dialogue with you and your team about 
how we might constitute such a strategic plan or catalyze the creation of one, um, because that seems to uh, make a lot of sense. So thank you so much for your testimony, and um, uh, that will conclude our, our, our first panel. Thank you, Senator. I'd like to welcome you again uh, to this subcommittee, Mr. Nims. Uh, you serve as the acting director of the Office of Food for Peace at uh, USAID. This is your second time to testify before the subcommittee, and i um, so appreciative uh, of the time you give us. Your full written statement will be included in the record. We are dealing uh, with a somewhat compressed time frame, which explains why we're moving quickly between panels. Uh, we're, we're very interested to hear from all of our witnesses. Uh, so I welcome you to go ahead and summarize your written statement in about five minutes, sir. Thank you, uh, Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley uh, and members and other people here today for uh, the invitation to speak with you about the link between global food security and America's economic prosperity. I'm honored to be here and honored to be on the same panel with, with such an esteemed colleagues as well as to be following our, my good friend, Governor David Beasley. I'm Matthew Nims. Acting Director of USAID's Office of Food for Peace, the largest provider of food assistance in the world. Last year, Food for Peace reached nearly 70 million people in 53 countries. We provide food assistance because it eases human suffering, as you said, and represents America's compassion and generosity. Helping feed those around the world in their greatest time of need is the right thing to do, but also makes America and her allies safer. Hunger and conflict are linked. Where hunger persists, instability grows. The opposite is also true. Where conflict occurs, hunger often follows. Food for Peace is uniquely positioned to tackle hunger in both of these situations. The U.S. national security strategy states, we will partner with our allies to alleviate the worst poverty and suffering, which fuels instability. History has proven this to be true. In 2010, hunger was a catalyst to the Arab Spring. And today in Venezuela, as the governor just talked about, economic instability has made food and other basic supplies unaffordable and even unavailable, which in turn has led to growing civil unrest. Where there is conflict, hunger is often a symptom. Conflict prevents farmers from planting and harvesting crops, robbing them of their livelihoods, and later robbing, robbing others of food to eat. Conflict prevents people from traveling to and from markets making the food that is available inaccessible to some. Over time, conflict prevents people from living full, healthy lives because they are weakened from lack of food and fall victim to preventable illness. I just returned from Uganda, where I saw the effects of more than 1.4 million refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, and Burundi, who have all, shot, who have all come to seek shelter. The sheer number of refugees is an enormous burden for a host country that already struggles with its own poverty and hunger. But Uganda is still thriving with good agricultural production, infrastructure development, good roads, things that can only really flourish when there's peace. It was a stark contrast to my visit to South Sudan last year, where I've seen that the effects war has had truly draining the full economy. Conflict forces millions of people to make choices no one should have to face. 
stay where they are and starve, or head into unknown danger to find food. We see this today in places like Yemen, South Sudan, and Nigeria, and Somalia, where people are dependent on humanitarian assistance for survival. For three years, conflict in Yemen has hampered commercial trade in a country that imports 90% of its food. As a result, 17.8 million people, the largest number in the world, still face severe food insecurity. Years of violence in South Sudan have transformed the world's youngest nation into the world's most food insecure. Famine was declared a year ago. A, a robust international humanitarian response rolled back the famine four months later, but conflict continues and famine once again is a risk. In Northeast Nigeria, Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa have displaced millions. Violence, including deliberate attacks and continued kidnapping of civilians and aid workers, prevents relief groups from reaching the most vulnerable communities. While drought is a primary, primary driver of hunger in Somalia, violence also prevents relief groups from reaching some populations. 2.7 million Somalis face significant hunger right now. These are not the only countries currently facing crises. The humanitarian system is enormously strained. Tomorrow, March 15, marks the seventh anniversary, seven years, of the conflict in Syria, which has left 10.5 million people unable to meet basic needs. Last August, violence in Burma forced more than half a million Rohingya refugees to flee to, to, flee to Bangladesh. In the De Democratic Republic of Congo, nearly 7.7 .7 million experience extreme hunger due to prolonged conflict and widespread poverty. In 2018, 76 million people worldwide will need emergency food assistance. Over half of our humanitarian funding will likely go to six emergencies, nearly all conflict-driven. The work we do in conflict area is harder, more expensive, and more dangerous. Last year, 131 aid workers died, primarily in conflict areas, and numerous more were harassed, attacked, and kidnapped. Large, protracted, conflict-driven crises are our new normal and USAID needs all the tools possible at its disposal to respond. Nutritious food is essential where there is high malnutrition, so in places like Bangladesh, we use American-made therapeutic food. For Syrian refugees who live in urban environments where markets function, electronic vouchers and cash transfers make the most sense and have the most impact. Flexibility enables us to save the most lives possible and use taxpayer dollars wisely. Through our resilience programs and in coordination with other parts of USAID, we also work proactively to tackle the underlying causes of hunger, which, left unchecked, can lead to frustration and despair that can't be exploited. These long-term programs are essential to saving lives and livelihoods, growing national and regional economies, and diminishing the unsustainable financial burden of recurrent humanitarian spending. A food-secure world where people are not worried about their children going to bed hungry is in the U.S. interest. Stability helps ward off future conflict, and prosperity opens new markets for U.S. exports and trade. Thank you for your attention to this issue and your continued support Congress has provided to USCID and specifically our humanitarian programs over the years. Well, thank you, Mr. Nims, and I'm eager to uh, turn to uh, resilience and, and uh, stability that comes with providing food assistance uh, generally, uh, which is something you spoke to, but you also mentioned uh, the conflict and associated humanitarian crisis in Yemen. So I want to briefly touch on that. There's been some messaging from Riyadh uh, to suggest that the opening of Hodeidah, the port of Hodeidah, uh, might be temporary. And I just want to be clear that uh, I will escalate my efforts uh, here in the U.S. Senate, uh, and I expect that a number of my colleagues will join me uh, in those efforts if Riyadh were to reimpose its starvation blockade and close Hodeidah. 
uh, as I wrote in my letter to the President on December 14, suggesting that we must choose between defeating Iran's efforts in Yemen and permitting unimpeded humanitarian access is a false choice, a, as self-defeating and short-sighted as it is immoral. Uh, I haven't changed my views. Uh, I, I do want to get uh, your opinion, Mr. Nims, about the importance of the Port of Hodeida to humanitarian efforts in Yemen, and perhaps you could speak to um, the hypothetical uh, the, uh, of, of the closure of the Port of Hodeida moving forward, and, and, and uh, what would the humanitarian consequences of that decision be? Um, thank you for the question, Senator. As you probably know, Yemen is 90% dependent upon imports um, to, to feed its people. The, the port of Hodeida is the crucial link to ensure that that happens, both for the commercial sector, but also primarily for the humanitarian operations that are based there. Uh, the World Food Program maintains a large operation in the port of Hodeida, and its continued operation is crucial for humanitarian operations to continue. As of now, the port, the port is open. Um, however, I think because of some of the uncertainty surrounding um, the port, um, many shipping companies around the world are reticent to send ships into the, into the port, and I think until we can, as a humanitarian and international community, give a little bit higher degree of certainty, um, this will continue to inflect the, the amount and level of, of commerce that we see in the port. Just to add a, a measure of certainty, uh, perhaps in the margins uh, to the situation, um, it would be helpful to get the administration's position regarding uh, the need to keep the Red Sea ports open uh, to humanitarian and commercial supplies, especially food, fuel, and, and medicine. Uh, kindly uh, volunteer that to me, sir. The administration is unequivocally um, behind keeping the ports open for humanitarian and commercial traffic on the Red Sea ports. Excellent. So back to um, the resilience program. Uh, of USAID and the importance of ensuring we have wise use of taxpayer money. In your testimony, you cite a 2013 UK study that estimated for every dollar invested in resilience, it's going to result in $3 in reduced humanitarian assistance needs and avoided losses over just a 15-year window. Uh, I'd say that's, that's money well spent. Uh, you also noted that a more recent USAID study confirms this estimated return. Can you provide more details on how you believe resilience investments save money? I think um, most definitely, sir. Uh, we have learned um, both, you know, through our, our programs um, that taking the time to build the community as well as the host government's ability to respond to crisis, that we save money in the long run because of the high cost of emergency response in these situations. What we saw very predominantly in the El Nino crisis was places in Ethiopia and Kenya where we had longer-term development and resilience programs in place. That the very large impact that a drought situation has was minimized because our longer-term programs have provided the foundation for communities to utilize their coping strategies to more easily respond. It takes a lot of effort and time to put these programs in place, but when they're done effectively and they link together both the emergency response aspects combined to solid development programmings, we're seeing a lesson of the costs. And are, are, are you discovering uh, best practices and those are, are, are those being widely shared among the humanitarian community? 
there are many lessons that we learned, both from, I think, the, the, the five fam or four famines that we had last year. And I think one of them, number one, is the early warning aspect. And our, our famine early warning system um, that the USAID funds has been instrumental in letting us know when we see these increase of, of, of crises coming and how to best position ourselves. Number two, similar to, to what the executive director of World Food Program was saying, the dynamic has shifted um, where we are not, as a humanitarian community, simply responding to climactic or to tsunamis or earthquakes. What we're seeing now is that these are prolonged crises that are taking a lot of time and effort. And quite honestly, I think that the humanitarian community is still struggling to be able to more effectively change our approaches in, the, in these situations. Our excellent partners like CARE, like the World Food Program, are leading the way in, in some of these longer-term solutions using humanitarian. And I think we have to double down on our efforts to be able to do this effectively. Thank you, sir. Senator Merkley. Thank you. And uh, can you uh, detail how the program, our program, Feed the Future, fits into that vision? Um, thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, Feed the Future um, is, as I think, that excellent link from the community-led, field-based type operations that Food for Peace has been doing for the last 50 years to that next level of assistance that's needed. So, for example, our programs and our partners, primarily CARE, World Vision, CRS, and the world, have excellent experience working in these most vulnerable communities in these countries on, the, on protecting food insecurity at that community level. What Feed the Future has come as bringing in is being able to then work with host governments, work with the market levels in those communities agriculturally to be able to link many times those, those, subs, those subsistence farmers to a higher level degree of market engagement to then give that next step that's necessary. Food for Peace has and will continue to work with these communities, but having that next step to link them to, to that higher level part of the development is crucial, and Feed the Future is giving us that. Let me translate what I think you're saying. When you say link them to that next level, are you talking about farm cooperatives and value added to the fundamental agricultural products? Most definitely, sir. Okay. Thank you. Um, the, um, in some places, we provide in-kind food. Others, we provide vouchers. In some places, we're even providing cash payments over electronic messages to cell phones. Can you talk about what works in what locations and how, how has that cell phone strategy helped to keep, in some cases, hostile parties from intercepting food aid? Right now, Food for Peace is, is very fortunate to have a number of tools available as we look at all the crises. Our team is very much geared towards looking what's happening on the ground and being able to utilize the correct tool to have the most impact to protect food, secu food, food security. So you're exactly right. In some places where there's an absence of food, in-kind U.S. food is a, is a great tool to be using there. And our partners on the ground, along with our own, the Famine Early Warning System, as well as our teams on the ground, are able to gauge if that's what needs to be done there. At the same time, we have the ability to use a voucher-type program. If you look at our programs in Syria right now, bringing in large amounts of U.S. in-kind food into, let's say, 
Lebanon and Jordan to feed refugees would be incredibly inefficient. Capitalizing on the market system that already exists there, being able to use a complex voucher program that allows these refugees to go to local stores, even you know, Safeways or, or large supermarkets, to, to receive their rations is a much more efficient way to do that. Our job in Food for Peace is to ensure that what's happening on the ground is understood both by our partners as well as our teams to ensure that the, the correct mechanism is utilized in those situations. And can you mention the, the so one of those tools is the preloaded debit cards and um, why that works and why that fits into the Syria context? In, in Syria, for example, we do have actual cash cards that, that every month are, are loaded with an amount of a ration size through the World Food Program that allows them to go to these stores. This is a, is a direct transfer through banking systems that allows us to monitor this more directly. It, it, you know, the having to move food around and it diminishes other actors, their ability to actually access these funds. So it's a safe system and it's actually in many ways safer than, than other actions because we're able to go electronically through the mobile system that gives them a tool that already exists there to be able to utilize that for their own food security. Bangladesh has accepted 700,000 uh, refugees from Burma and uh, I had the chance to, to take a congressional delegation there. And to see it firsthand, the, uh, there is no room in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is about half the size of Oregon, and Oregon has 4 million people living in it. Bangladesh has about 160 million people, and I mean, every piece of land is occupied. The, uh, the hillsides are, are being uh, uh, covered with uh, split bamboo structures, covered with plastic. Uh, high winds will, will undoubtedly do a lot of damage to those structures. Uh, the surrounding trees are being cut down to, to burn, to, to cook, They're, so the, the hillsides are being quickly denuded, raising concerns uh, about the coming rainy season, as well as the risk of measles, cholera, other diseases. As one looks at this, it's a, it's a massive food distribution, as well as a health care dilemma. It's a dilemma on, on so many levels. Uh, how are you all engaged? We, may, we remain incredibly concerned about the situation in Bangladesh with, with over, well now almost close to 800,000 Rohingya refugees, maybe more like 700,000 Rohingya refu refugees. Over 200,000, as you said, it, in the camps right now are actually in places where with moderate rains are going to be subjected to flooding. And we need to act quickly to be able to, in a sense, control the overcrowding that we see in these camps. Um, I think that we also need to understand that the US alone cannot fund this. We need other partners around the world to step up. And I think with the new um, humanitarian plan that will be coming out soon, that this provides a great opportunity for, for many of, of the world to, to ensure that they also are part of this. I think another aspect which is very difficult there is as this, as this crisis develops, we do not want to be part of any type of forcing of, of returnees back into Burma, back into Myanmar, because we want to ensure that conditions are right for that to happen. And hence, if we're looking at a large group of people here, we're going to have to better look at the environmental impact that this is having and how we can better serve them. So I, I, I appreciate all of that. Are, are you helping to crank up a, a significant international momentum or more aid from the United States to assist in that situation? Yes, our teams are involved in that right now and negotiating with Thank you. Well, I certainly uh, encourage that. and. Uh, as we have transition in our foreign policy leadership, I think it's an opportunity for the United States to 
uh, consider how we might amplify our, our strategy. This is also a security issue. You have uh, 700,000 people, including many young men, who have uh, seen their, their, their spouses raped, their daughters raped, uh, they've been shot at. They're, they're ripe for recruitment by international terrorist op operations. So there's a security dimension as well as humanitarian dimension. And, and I just want to see the U.S. In the, in the forefront of a global effort to take on this challenge and including the relationship with Burma and how we exercise that. Senator Kenney, I'll just say just how much our teams appreciate when, when you all come out to see the efforts that the humanitarian community and bringing this to light. And from, from them, just a, a note of thanks for, for that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Merkley. We've been joined uh, by Senator Coons, uh, another leader in the area of uh, foreign assistance and someone who uh, doesn't hesitate to put his boots on the ground. Um, we're going to finish this, uh, all the panels up. So we have one more panel uh, after Senator Coons' questions, and uh, we'll be concluding no later than 4 o'clock since we have a 345 vote. But Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Senator Young and um, Senator Merkley. It's great to be with you. And I'm um, I'm grateful that you're dedicating this time and attention to something that matters uh, so much to hungry people around the world and to my good friend, Governor Beasley. Um, thank you for what you're doing to lead the World Food Program and to be physically present in so many of the places around the world that need our help and with our allies who we hope uh, will be stepping forward and contributing more to this. It's great to see you again, Mr. Nims. I think I last saw you in Uganda at the BDBD camp, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. Uh, to my dear friend, Michelle Nunn, thank you for what you and CARE do, and to uh, General Kestel and Dr. Sova, um, thank you for your service. I hope you do convey um, to the folks um, who work in Food for Peace and OFTA in World Food Program in CARE and in other organizations how grateful we are for this work. It is dangerous. It is difficult. It overwhelmingly happens in some of the most remote uh, most uh, demanding environments on earth. Uh, and when I was in South Sudan, um, it literally in the previous 48 hours, there had been several uh, aid workers uh, kidnapped or killed. And so um, this is literally um, the Lord's work or work that carries forward um, the values of the world that care for others. I'll put it that way. Um, I see it both ways, but folks can, can see it whatever way they choose. Um, and I'm grateful to have had the chance on a bipartisan basis to work with colleagues on uh, legislation that helps make possible your important work. Um, I'm a co-sponsor of the Global Food Security Reauthorization Act, um, which I'm hoping we will move forward to reauthorize. Um, and in particular, it reauthorizes Feed the Future and would give us five more years of Feed the Future. And I'm grateful to Senator Isaacson for his real leadership on that. Um, today or tomorrow, Senator Corker and I will be uh, introducing the Food for Peace Modernization Act. Um, which uh, I think is important at a time when, as you've testified, millions, tens of millions um, are food insecure at risk of starvation. It would reduce requirements for monetization um, and for U.S. commodities, although retaining a key role for U.S. commodities. Um, could you just briefly discuss the potential savings um, we could expect to see if we pass those kinds of reforms into law and how that would help us reach more people uh, with life-saving food aid? Thank you um, for that question, Senator. Um, while I am uh, conversant on and know that the bill uh, that you all have been working on, and I do want to say that the continued in interest on the Hill on, the, the, on food security is, is, is welcomed. Um, we look forward to, to being able to comment on that bill. At this time, the administration does not have a position on that. Got it. That being said, um, any efforts to make more flexible and more efficient um, you know, the utilization of humanitarian resources is, is welcome. Let me ask you a different question. Um, the budget proposes eliminating food for peace. Seems a little more directly targeted. Um, 
which would then focus on international disaster assistance and OFTA um, to provide emergency food assistance. My concern is that eliminating Food for Peace um, would shift our focus to emergency assistance and put less focus on development and nutritional support uh, that can help countries and communities graduate from aid and develop their own ag-based economies. Uh, the animating genius of Feed the Future, as you were just testifying, is about moving from disaster to resiliency to sustainability. Um, how can we ensure we're addressing hunger at all stages? Um, and um, comment if you feel so inclined and it's appropriate on the elimination of food for peace. Uh, so just, just to, to be clear and, and, and to give a perspective, uh, what the administration's bill does is, is correct that the current um, request on funding does eliminate the Title II aspect of, of, of our funding. However, in the IDA section, um, which does go, would actually enable Food for Peace to continue to, to exist and actually to link back to the GFSS, the Emergency Food Security Program actually is is uh, approved and, and put forward in that bill as well, which right. codifies the fact that we can use international disaster assistance funds to buy food even in the United States as well as locally to do our voucher programs. Uh, the administration's request is through the IDA to support those life-saving food programs. It is viewed as a much more efficient way to do this. It is viewed based on broad experience as a much more efficient way to do this? Luckily, my job um, right now in, in, in USAID Food for Peace is, is to be able to take the resources allocated um, right. to be able to do the best that I can and to stress them the furthest. What we have seen is that w there are places around the world where we need US in kind as well as we need the flexibility. And with those resources, we work hard with our partners to be able to do, um, to do that job. Great. I recognize we have a third panel and we have an impending vote. I have many more questions, as you know, um, since I've harassed you with them overseas as well as here. Um, thank you um, for your service and, and for the very real and important work that you and everyone with you does. Thank you for your interest and continued support in our programs. Well, thank you again, uh, Mr. Nims, for your appearance here today, for your service, uh, and uh, we'll look forward to our continued work together. This concludes the second panel. We'll give the uh, witnesses for the third panel a few minutes to uh, seat themselves. Once again, I'd like to welcome the uh, following three witnesses to our final panel. Dr. Chase Soba, Director of Public Policy and Research at the World Food Program USA. Lieutenant General John Castellaw, who served with distinction in the U.S. Marine Corps. And Ms. Michelle Nunn, President and Chief Executive Officer of CARE USA. Now, your full written statements will be included in the record. If you uh, could possibly um, compress your, your 
statements uh, as, as you present them here today to three minutes. That would be wonderful, affording more time uh, for myself and my colleagues to ask questions. Uh, would be much appreciated. So let's go in the order that I announced, Dr. Sova. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, uh, especially alongside this panel. Uh, I will do my best to, to channel David Beasley here, uh, re representing the World Fruit Program USA here. Uh, my task this afternoon is to share with you uh, the findings from a report produced by the World Food Program USA, Winning the Peace, Hunger and Instability. Uh, let me say this at the outset. There, on some issues, it takes academia a while to catch up with what we know to be intuitively true, and I think that that's, uh, that's accurate here with the link between global uh, hunger and instability. Uh, I think that it's, uh, it's abundantly obvious that, that war produces hunger and poverty, but what we explore in Winning the Peace is the opposite direction of causation, that food insecurity uh, can be a driver in itself uh, of instability. This report essentially tells the story of 53 uh, peer-reviewed academic journal articles. Uh, and across those studies, researchers uh, tested 11 unique drivers of food insecurity, uh, from land competition to food price spikes uh, to rainfall variability, and successfully linked them uh, to about nine uh, types of instability. And this ranged from things like protests all the way up to interstate conflict. And if I were to succinctly sum up the, the findings of this report, it would be that food insecurity creates desperation that manifests in many ways, sometimes violent, but almost always destabilizing. Uh, sometimes we see this in the form of conflicts between herding communities and farmers over increasing land and water competition. Other times this comes in the form of food price riots, uh, and still, other times still we see uh, food-related instability occurring because of uh, extreme events. But what's, I think, important here is that winning the peace also shows that those drivers of food-related instability and those drivers of food insecurity must also be met with individual motivations, right? And those motivations are, are, are a few things. Uh, first is grievance. Modern conflicts are almost never driven by a single cause. Uh, and food insecurity uh, can be a contributor. Sometimes uh, it is that grievance. Other times it provides an opportunity for underlying disagreements to surface or resurface. Sometimes food insecurity is the straw that breaks the camel's back uh, in these crises. Uh, second really is, is the economic motivation, and, and the executive director spoke about this. Uh, every, it, it's obvious that in some cases, uh, if there's clear economic advantage to resorting to unrest uh, or violence, uh, people will be willing to do that if they're compensated. Uh, and so we see that obviously with, uh, with rebel groups offering uh, to pay people to participate in these activities, often uh, taking advantage of people's desperation. Uh, and the third here is, is governance. Uh, and this is uh, when the state is unwilling or unable to, to prevent food insecurity or they're uh, in a, unable to uh, enforce rule of law. So those are kind of the three main uh, individual motivators, and we can talk more about that. But the findings of winning the peace make it clear that there is a direct empirical link between food insecurity and global instability. Food security is foundational to peace and security. And one of the single best investments that we can make in global stability is to help people who can't feed themselves or their families. We need to be waging a war on hunger, not its symptoms. 
So uh, two things real quickly here that we can do. Ensure robust funding for, for food assistance accounts. Uh, we spend $2 trillion every year on military spending, and we weren't able to meet the $9 billion needs of the World Food Program last year. Uh, and so we can do better than that. Uh, when all you have is a hammer, all you tend to see is nails, uh, and we have other things beyond hammers in our portfolio. And second, real briefly, uh, we, I would call on Congress to, to reauthorize the Global Food Security Act, um, and uh, we can discuss that in detail here soon. But I'll leave it there and uh, look forward to your questions regarding the report. Thank you, Dr. Lieutenant General Castellaw. Welcome. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking uh, Member uh, Merkley. Uh, I'll try to reduce this to a frag order, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Chairman Young. If I were to summarize my career, I would say that I was in the post-Vietnam generation that included uh, Jim Mattis. And what we did was we saw the demise eventually of the Soviet Union and symmetrical warfare, and what we saw was asymmetrical warfare, which we are dealing with now. Uh, I've seen this in the Horn of Africa, in West Africa, the Lake uh, Chad Basin, uh, in uh, Asia Pacific. Uh, it is clear that food security should be an element of our national security. And when we talk about diplomacy, development, and defense, or our military, we should look at how we balance our expenditures, our allocation of resources, how we take a strategy that puts all this together. The number, the piece of information that's most important to me comes in the casualty figures. 10,000 Americans have been killed in the global war on terror, over 50,000 have been wounded. They constitute the most precious treasure we have in the United States, which is the blood of the men and women who serve. Anything we can do that eliminates the requirement for them to do what they are willing to do, which is give up their lives, is worth the money. To think about cutting the international development budget by 30%, I would submit to you is unacceptable. One of the great things, and I've had the opportunity over the last day or two to talk to a number of senators and administration officials, is the fact that now we are starting to see Jim Mattis at defense. We're, uh, hopefully we'll see the new Secretary of State and then people like Mark Green at AID come together, sit down, look, at what the situation is, and together come up with a strategy that includes food security and allocates the resources accordingly. Thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you, General. I think we're breaking through on this issue uh, from the uh, national security standpoint. I'm grateful for your leadership. Ms. Nunn. Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley, thank you for the opportunity to be here today and to be with this uh, terrific panel. Uh, I represent CARE, which traces its roots back to 1945 when a small group of Americans invented the original CARE packages, food rations for starving survivors of World War II in Europe. And today the CARE package is an icon of uh, American generosity. It's inspiring to consider the compassion that led us not only to support our allies but also our former enemies. And it was 
part of a multi-pronged effort that ensured a stable and prosperous Europe as a critical U.S. ally and partner. So from the delivery of those first care packages, CARE's work has evolved and now stretches across 94 countries, reaching more than 62 million people annually. So in addition to emergency aid, our programs now focus on long-term development and building resilience among populations to permanently lift people out of poverty. We prioritize the empowerment of women and girls in our work because we know that they are disproportionately affected by poverty and they are also key to overcoming it. So in my testimony, I want to share why we invest in women, uh, the proven impact of U.S. investments, the consequences of a world without U.S. leadership, and a path forward. So first of all, why women? So when food is in short supply, women and girls are often the most impacted and are regularly the last to eat. Girls' poor access to food results in stunting and much worse during pregnancy. In times of crisis, girls are the first to be pulled out of school to help with household chores or earning an income. Also, in times of drought, famine, or natural disaster, families often seek to safeguard their daughters by placing them in child marriages, which, of course, dramatically diminishes their future. <coughs> Finally, women are often denied the same basic rights as men, such as owning land or having access to inputs as smallholder farmers, which compounds their vulnerability and diminishes the overall security of families. But while women are the most impacted, they also have the capacity to create disproportionate change. So we know, for instance, that if women had the same access to inputs and land as men, that they could feed over 150 million more people in the world as smallholder farmers. At CARE, we've seen how building food security and prioritizing women empowerment can transform communities. In Ethiopia, for instance, uh, last year, just as some of the areas of the country began to recover, they were hit again by a devastating drought. Yet famine was never declared. This is not only because of U.S. leveraged emergency assistance, but also because of investments in long-term resilience, such as those included in the Feed the Future program. These resilience program, including CARES grad program in Ethiopia, improve participant skills, they provide financial literacy, and they diversify livelihoods. We've seen tremendous results. For instance, within five years, annual household income increased by 87%, and 62% of grad families have graduated off of government assistance altogether. That's out of 50, that's 50,000 uh, families, 50,000 people. These results show that we can break the devastating cycles of extreme food insecurity through long-term investments in resilience and capacity building, and this is the best spirit of America's leadership. Yet despite these clear and well-documented results, the President's latest budget proposed severe cuts to programs that build resilience, including Feed the Future. Cuts that, if enacted, could translate to more than 5 million farmers who would lose access to programs that help them to grow their way out of poverty. So it doesn't take much to imagine what will occur should these programs become a reality. Without resilience programs, droughts, floods, and climate disruptions will wreak havoc on small farms. They will dri we'll drive up food insecurity and poverty. And we know that these populations, these uh, fragile populations, are most at risk at falling into crisis and stability. So we know there's also another path forward. And it is imperative that we take it. With last year's passage of the FY17 omnibus, Congress made clear that the U.S. will continue to lead in responding to crisis and to fight to end extreme poverty. And the work being done through Feed the Future shows us that we can end poverty for good. 
Congress can continue their commitment by reauthorizing the Global Food Security Act, which is set to expire this year. The Global Food Security Act assures that the great work being done through Feed the Future and the U.S. government's global food security strategy continues. So we look forward to your discussions, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, thank you, Ms. Nunn. And um, I'm going to uh, request that uh, our witnesses answer uh, the, my questions over the next uh, few minutes fairly concisely uh, in light of time constraints. But uh, uh, Dr. Silva, I want to congratulate you on, on uh, publication of your World Food Program USA report, Winning the Peace, Hunger, and Instability. You sought to examine the link between food insecurity on one hand and global instability on the other, and you found a very direct link, surveying all the research, 53 peer-reviewed journal articles. That's mm. correct, right? That's correct. Um, you discussed the reasons why food insecure people sometimes resort to violence or other forms of social unrest, identifying several causal mechanisms in the scholarly literature, including grievance, economic, or governance motivations. General Casselaw, does Dr. Sova's research drawing that linkage between food insecurity on one hand and global instability on the other reflect your real-world experience as a United States Marine? Sir, it certainly does. Uh, whether we're talking about what we saw in the Horn of Africa, what we've seen in uh, Syria, uh, what we're, what's developing in Venezuela, all of it shows that at least uh, one of the contributing factors is food insecurity. I will always remember being in the Southern Africa, watching men and women scavenge on piles of garbage to find stuff to feed their family. The looks of depression and hopelessness are what drives instability. And Ms. Nunn, when combined with the moral imperative, from your perspective, what are the policy implications of this clear link between food insecurity and, and instability or violence? Uh, we absolutely also experience and see on the ground in the countries that we work with this correlation between uh, food insecurity and instability. And in particular, what we see is um, how displacement, as an example, that comes from food insecurity is often a trigger for uh, further insecurity that is destabilizing and which must be prevented in order to, uh, to really ensure stability. Uh, for either Ms. Nunn or, or the general. What are the implications of these conclusions for the international affairs budget and for the food security programs within it? <laughs> Terrible. Uh, what we have to do is make sure that they're funded, fully funded in order to reduce the opportunity that may occur later to have to introduce our forces. Uh, absolutely essential. I think we just have to ensure, and we know what works. We have evidence that if we invest early in resilience, that we can prevent not only human suffering, but also future conflict. So I can't resist General Castellaw. As chairman's prerogative, my time is winding down, but I'm going to shoehorn one more question in. Just give me, in, in um, your unadulterated Marine Corps language, uh, a sense of, of what the impact would be on our nation's security as we conventionally define it. If we have a powerful and well-resourced military uh, without equally effective diplomatic and development capabilities. I think it's pretty clear uh, those of us that have spent our uh, lives in defense of our country understand that it's not just about 
guns and bullets. Uh, it's also the human factor. And when we're talking about a situation where we have the youth bulge, we have people that are hungry, the instability that comes from it, uh, not all the bullets in the world are going to be able to deal with that. Senator Merkley. General, in that context, we, we don't have nominees for some places like Somalia and DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, that are very complex, very um, riven by both food insecurity and uh, strife. Uh, would you recommend to the administration that they forward nominees for us to consider here? You know, one of the uh, privileges that I've had is to work with uh, individuals from other agencies, including the uh, Department of the State, uh, as well as other agencies. What we need to ensure is that we give them the resources that we provide to good people, make their ability to act agile with those resources, and, uh, and so we have to have those people in place. Uh, thank you. And you wrote in a U.S. News editorial in February that Blue Helmet peacekeeping operations are more affordable and sometimes more effective as compared to U.S. armed, the commitment of U.S. armed forces to conflict areas. The GAO, Government Accounting Office, did a study and they found that U.S. contributions to peacekeeping operation in the Central African Republic is about an eighth of what it would cost for a deployed U.S. military to for the same purpose. Uh, is it... Um, so we have a proposed budget cut of $710 million to international peacekeeping operations. In your sense, should, should we continue to maintain our current investment and poss or possibly increase it? Uh, we need to uh, maintain it. Uh, I have been the Central African Republic. I've been among those UN force keeper, or peacekeepers. They are capable. They need the resources to do it. Again, I go back to the fact that our most precious resource is the blood of the men and women who serve. When we can get others to go and share the burden, then we reduce the need to send our sons and daughters. So I'm just going to ask one last question because of the, we're, we're in the middle of a vote right now. I assume it started. It started. It started. And uh, so, uh, Ms. Nunn, thank you so much for your leadership of, of CARE. And uh, you mentioned uh, addressing some of the challenges uh, for, for women. And one of the programs that you have supported uh, has been uh, assisting women in their, through their pregnancies and uh, the, the, the early stages of, of childhood to give those children a, a good start at life. Uh, there's many other challenges that can come beyond that, but have you found that to be an, an effective strategy that we should continue to invest in? We know that investing in the first thousand days of uh, a child's life and also ensuring that mothers have antenatal and postnatal care is critical to child survival and also to their thriving and success. We also know, for instance, that stunting can have long-term implications not only on the child but also on the capacity for economies and nations to thrive. So these are very smart investments, low cost, that have a tremendous return. Well, I, I love that way of framing it, the first thousand days. I was trying to remember what the title was, and that, that was it. Uh, but that certainly uh, gets kids launched into to life and supports the mothers. And uh, thank you for the tremendous work that Carrie's doing. Well, there are no uh, further questions.
uh, from the panel. I, I want to thank uh, all of our witnesses for being here today. I want to thank you for your leadership, and um, we look forward to continued dialogue uh, so that we can improve existing programs, make sure that those programs which are effective um, uh, remain effective, and um, uh, we, uh, we prevent this linkage which has been identified from groundbreaking research uh, between food insecurity on one hand and uh, instability on the other. So thank you all. Have a great day. And uh, I will add that uh, uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. This hearing is adjourned.